You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. It's Archie. Archie the archaeologist. Archie could be like our, I don't know, a woodchuck. and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 7. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host, Ken Fader. And today, a special interview with Brad Lepper and Jeff Gill. Today, we're talking about the Newark Holy Stones. We'll look at the history of the stones, how they were discovered, their political implications at the time of their discovery, and what makes them popular even today. Get ready to think critically. Digging in a trench, monuments, going to the pub when the day is spent. Funny beady blokes, you will see, are a staple of archaeology. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Archie Fantasies podcast. I'm Sarah, here with my co-host Ken. Hi, hi Sarah. How you doing, Ken? I'm great. Excellent, and we have uh, a special interview today with Brad Lepper. Hi there! Hello, Brad. <laughs> hi, Sarah. And, and Jeff Gill. Hello. Hello. So, uh, Brad is a... Uh, PhD from the Ohio State University. Uh, he has a regular column for the Columbus Dispatch, and he is also the author of the Ohio Archaeology, an illustrated chronicle of Ohio's ancient American Indian cultures. Of particular noteworthiness, uh, you made some really cool discoveries here with the Burning Tree Mastodon. Uh, is that a site? Yeah, it was a site. The uh, Burning Tree Mastodon, I didn't actually discover it. That It was found when they were um, excavating. Ah, uh, you excavated it. Yeah. There we go. And I just came in and helped dig it up in two days. Okay, and that was named one of the top 50 science discoveries of 1990 uh, by Discovery. You did actually discover the Great, Ho- Great Hopewell Road, just, which was originally reported in 19, uh, 1995, right? Well, I sort of discovered it in the archives because two guys discovered it back in the 1860s and never published. Now, what's the Great Hopewell Road? It's a long set of parallel walls that come out of the Newark earthworks, specifically the Octagon earthworks, and go off into the southwest an unknown distance. But the James and Charles Salisbury in 1862 traced it for about six and a half miles, and other people seem to have traced it maybe a total of 10 miles. And if you follow it in a straight line, like maybe the Chaco Canyon roads, for example, it'll take you directly to Chillicothe, which is the center of the Hopewell world. Very nice. I, I think I, I, I know what you're talking about because I, I took a tour of the mounds um, two years ago and it was very, we, we got to see part of that actually. It's, true, it's truly monumental. I mean, it's an amazing uh, piece of engineering, uh, just astonishing stuff. And it, yeah, again, going back to uh, Native American earthworks, um, just they really are amazing mm-hmm. things. Um, the walls are taller than I am and I'm, well, I'm only five feet tall, but still, that's, <laughs> that's pretty dang tall. I'm sorry. Uh, and Brad is also well known for his work with the Newark Holy Stones, as is Jeff, correct? Correct. All right, Jeff, how did, can you tell us a little about yourself or let Brad tell us a little bit about you? Or Well, I, I'm an avocational archaeologist. I did my undergrad at Purdue University, but I'm actually a minister and uh, an all-around community troublemaker. And, okay, uh, that's good. Uh, basically, I've always been interested in prehistory and archaeology, and I came to this area back in 1989. And, and very quickly stumbled into some active digs and also got called on when uh, that fellow with the drag line found the burning tree mastodon. So I, I got <laughs> wet fast. And as Brad and I became friends uh, over those two projects, uh, he and, and some other folks we'd been working with were discussing these odd objects that supposedly had turned up at the early days, as it turns out, really before the American Civil War that seemed to have Hebrew writing on them. Well, I just finished seminary, and that piqued my interest. And I said, well, let me take a look at your notes. And we all started cross-referencing and commenting and discussing. And one thing leads to another, and, and here it is, 2015. Which is it's um, important to point out that, that, in other words, the these two scholars who have looked at the Newark Holy Stones have come from co- two completely different disciplines. And, and that the synergy there has been, I think, one of the important parts of this research is that synergy that's really allowed a definitive um, explanation for what those newer Coley Stones actually are. I, I hadn't thought about that, Ken. That is useful to know. You can use that in your business plan. I think I should. Absolutely. There you go. Uh, it's, it's good to have Jeff, though, because Jeff, like you said, is not a 
classically trained archaeologist. He's so true. Um, so true, yes. Uh, but you do apparently know quite a bit about the field, uh, if from nothing else, osmosis. Oh, Jeff, Jeff's uh, contributions have been essential. I mean, not only did he spot the errors in the Hebrew that conclusively prove it's a fraud, but when we were trying to figure out who was the perpetrator, um, Jeff, the minister, was around to say, maybe the minister did it. <laughs> Nobody else would have been willing to go there. Yeah. But, wow. you know, listen, before we go into these details, maybe, maybe Brad, would you tell the, our listeners, many of whom probably have if maybe only a vague um, uh, understanding of what happened, or maybe have never heard of the Newark Holy Stones, what were the Newark Holy Stones? Yeah, well, the Newark Holy Stones are two, and actually there were more like five originally, but only two are now famous and really seriously debated. They're two stone carvings that were found, one of them was found directly associated with the Newark Earthworks, and the second one was found several miles away, uh, associated with a different ancient American Indian structure, equally impressive, but different for important reasons. And these objects had Hebrew writing on them. And they were discovered in 1860, when the notion that the ancient earthworks were, could have been built by ancient Hebrews was still being entertained seriously by some professional archaeologists. And they show up at this time, and they're used to promote the idea that Hebrews had something to do with the earthworks. But then very rapidly, they slip into obscurity. Um, we can talk some de more details about that later. But then they get resurrected in recent years by mostly it was started by a guy here in, in uh, Granville, right next to Newark, who was a professor of biology. And he revived them and brought renewed attention to them, and he thought they were real, and he had his own agenda, which actually isn't probably too far from the agenda of some of the original perpetrators. <laughs> but um, So it's a, it's a fascinating story of frauds. They've been dismissed as frauds, you know, for, for generations. Almost from the day the first one was discovered. Right. Yeah, it was my understanding they were pretty much debunked pretty much as soon as they got cut. To, to taken out That's of the ground. The problem. Charles Whittlesey, who is you know, a very early prominent, I think you could say, archaeologist in the United States, certainly a geologist, but a, a guy who would be a good voice for them if they'd been authentic, he happened, and this is one of the coincidences we have some questions about, happened to be in Newark when the first one was discovered and rushed on horseback into town, and Whittlesey, to boil down a very long story, basically took it, looked at it, and went, uh, no. Nice. But interestingly, he didn't say it was a fraud. He, he noted a number of things about it. People in the community, some Masonic folks said it was a Masonic keystone, mm -hmm. which was one strike against it. It was a modern looking artifact related to the, the Masons. It wasn't buried very deeply where the guy, David Weirich, who was the discoverer of these, found them. And the other thing is the, the Hebrew writing on it was perfectly modern Hebrew, just the sort you'd see in a, in a Bible, a Hebrew Bible of that period. It was literally typeface carved into stone, and, and you could even see the marks of a metal instrument carving them in. So it was pretty clear uh, this wasn't that old. Yeah, so at first, Whittlesey never labeled them as frauds. He just said, it's a historic artifact, maybe only 20, 30 some years old or something, and it just got inadvertently associated with the earthworks there. Some Masonic Grandmaster happened to be riding by and it fell out of his saddlebag. Sure, could happen. I mean, that could happen, actually. It's, it's not that far-fetched. So, Brad, what was the context of the discovery, though? I mean, were these guys digging in, in excavation units or digging test pits? How was it Yeah, take, us, how was it take us all the way back to the beginning there. Well, David Weirich was a prominent, I suppose we would call him an amateur archaeologist, um, although he was doing, I suppose, the, the level of archaeology that professionals of that era were doing in, uh -huh. in 1860. And... We know that he had this idea that the lost tribes of Israel had built the earthworks. And instead of just being an armchair archaeologist, he went out to test that hypothesis by doing detailed maps of the earthworks and excavating. Now, I suppose his excavations were simply getting a shovel and digging a hole in the ground. Sure. And it was in one of those holes that he found in one of the small earthwork circles associated with Newark that he uncovered this brought it to Charles Whittlesey and his friend Israel Dilly and said, look, this proves my theory that the ancient Hebrews built the earthworks. So it's quite a, co a coincidence that somebody attempting to prove exactly that hypothesis happens to happen upon the artifact that proves his hypothesis. 
Absolutely. And the coincidence gets even deeper because when Whittlesey says, eh, you know, it's not, it's a historic object, David, um, just a few months later, the, the keystone, as it was called, was found in June. And in November, on November 1st, in fact, the Wyrick is digging at another site and comes across the definitive evidence that really um, meets all the criteria that, that uh, Whittlesey set. Every criteria that he said the keystone didn't measure up to, the, this second stone, which is called the Decalogue Stone, meets. It was found beneath what had been a gigantic stone mound. It, in fact, was the largest stone structure north of Mexico. It was a 40-foot-tall stone mound uh -huh. that had been dismantled. Nice. So it was in, found in one of those, the earthen mounds beneath that. So if it was really there, it couldn't be an innocent, recent intrusion. Right. The Hebrew writing on it was looked very old. It was a, I'll let Jeff talk about the so-called square Hebrew, and it didn't look anything like a Masonic artifact or any artifact that there's any modern analog for. So mm -hmm. it answers all the criticism. The first one, just three or four months after the first one was rejected. Well, it certainly sounds like it was made to order. Is that is that what your hypothesis is? Custom designed artifact. Exactly. Well, and Ken hit on this on in an earlier podcast, how we, ba we, the debunkers, basically write the book for the frauds because we say, <laughs> well, here is what it must look like in order for it to be real. And then the next thing you know, you have an even better fraud the next time. Right. Now, Brad, were there, beyond Weirich, were there witnesses? Were, did he have assistants, other people who could confirm or dispute his uh, description of how he found these things? Well, with the first one, with the keystone, he was digging with a son that was like 12 years old or something. Oh, okay. <laughs> And that's one of the things that's always led me to think that he wasn't involved with the fraud. He wasn't the perpetrator. Right. Why would you bring your 12-year-old son with you if you were going to do something nefarious? I um, see. And, and but, you know, there's a lot of stories, though, that it's a man digging with his son or a man and his son are out investigating something and they come across that. I mean, uh, for example, the Kensington Runestone is like that. And um, there's a couple other ones that I can't bring up to mind, but I know that they exist. Where it's a man and his his son are off digging, and then they find this remarkable object. Yeah, well, perhaps, yeah. Then you get to the Jacksontown Stone Mound, where in November the Decalogue Stone is found, and and he's got a, a whole bunch of helpers, and they're really helpful helpers, and uh -huh. they're trying to help him. And there, there's actually accounts from a couple of different perspectives we have of that dig, and and they all seem to kind of coalesce around uh, that there were some people going. Uh, Dave, how about if you dig uh, maybe a little <laughs> further to the left? And Is that right? Eric digs a little further to the left, and what do you know? His spade hits something. That's amazing. Huh. Now, one of the interesting elements, and I think I've shared this with you guys, is um, the difference in the Hebrew writing and the, 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 what the writing looks like. And I have a copy of that, the keystone. I have actually a copy of, of replicas of both of the holy stones. And I was at a meeting, a meeting on my campus where I was sitting across from a gentleman who's a, one of our librarians, and he's an Orthodox Jew. And he saw I had this copy, this this replica of the keystone in my backpack, bringing it to class, and he was curious about what it was. So I told him, well, this was supposedly a Hebrew inscribed artifact found in an ancient mound, maybe a couple thousand years old. Maybe it's supposed to be the lost tribes of Israel came to Ohio. And here's a guy who knew nothing whatsoever about the story, never heard of the newer Coley Stones, didn't know anything about archaeology or the mound builder controversy, and he immediately looked at me quizzically and said, but that's the wrong kind of Hebrew. Tis. Jeff, what did, what did he, when he said that, explain to our listeners, what does that mean? It's the wrong sure. kind now, of Hebrew. When he said that, was he looking at the keystone first? Yes. Yeah, the, the, the tan, the first object that was right. found. And that's the one where really uh, it's a fairly simple explanation in that what's carved into the stone is literally typeface. It's like finding an object that's supposed to be thousands of years old, but it has lettering that's in Helvetica. You're going to go, now wait a minute, that's that's exactly the font Helvetica. Right. You know, there, there's something wrong here. It's really uh, a half-baked forgery. It's very half-baked. Right. 
So, and, and uh, again, that's part of what Whittlesey on the scene very early on said, you know, this just can't be ancient. So, conveniently, we have this second object, the second holy stone, the Decalogue stone, that is covered with an inscription around a central bas-relief figure that, that says either Moshe or Moses, the, the three consonants of a, right. a vowelless Hebrew, and, and this figure of someone probably holding tablets, probably Moses, and the carving is fairly easy to puzzle out of the Ten Commandments, hence the Decalogue stone for Ten Commandments. But the alphabet, the, the letter forms are absolutely not a typeface. They don't look modern. They've been referred to by, by adherent and debunker alike as a square Hebrew. It looks like a sort of alphabet that would be designed to carve in stone. But some of the letters are very unusual. They don't really have any other precedent in, uh -huh. in Hebrew orthography. And so you had to sit down basically with a modern, say, Exodus 20 citation of the Ten Commandments and go through if you're encountering this for the first time and figure out which letter matches which in the Decalogue alphabet. And once you do that, you realize you do have the complete Ten Commandments. It's carved around the front of it, across the back of it, up and down the sides. But you also wow. notice that there's a problem in that there's these errors in the Hebrew. And that's where it really got interesting. Sure. Well, in terms of the Keystone, though, if you look at those, th that typography how how when did when were those letters used in publishing in other words what how old are those letters it couldn't be one minute older than about 200 years ago and oh, probably right? more recently than that it's a very modern typeface Hebrew. gotcha so literally typeface so let's put it this way it's no older than gutenberg and i'm not sure gutenberg ever got around to a hebrew bible so right I see, I see. So it, it, it was, it's literally a typeface that was made for printing machines. Exactly. It's a transposition. And that's important because then when you jump over to the Decalogue stone, which is trying to yell at us, I'm not the keystone. I'm much right. better than the keystone. But if right. it's the same people and the same process, they're not transposing the letter forms, but they get themselves into a whole different problem because right. that square Hebrew has a different letter shapes that don't resemble modern typeface Hebrew, but let's just imagine you're sitting with a kerosene lamp and some tools and a hunk of stone, and you're looking at this made-up alphabet you've created, and you're looking at a Hebrew Bible, and you're trying to transpose letter by letter the Ten Commandments onto this piece of stone. Mm -hmm. And essentially, the simplest description I can give you is that this error pattern has to do with letters that don't look similar in the Decalogue alphabet, the alphabet that's carved into the stone, but they look very similar in modern, again, typeface Hebrew. So interestingly to me, even some people who argue for some level of antiquity all agree it's a transposition error. The problem is you really have to turn a somersault to figure out why would you make that transposition error if you don't have a modern Hebrew Bible to confuse you. Now for comparison, you were saying that the the, the typeface Hebrew is 200 years old. How old are we talking with the square Hebrew? Well, I think the square Hebrew was somebody who had like a dictionary or something with a chart on one page of laying out like Phoenician and Sumerian and Akkadian and Hebrew alphabets. And they were trying to make up an old looking but still recognizable Hebrew alphabet. So it's it's not even an, an older form of Hebrew. It's, it's a made-up form of Hebrew is what Correct. you're saying. Correct. There's gotcha. no analogy to any ancient uh, Hebrew typeface or epigraphy or orthography. So it does, this, this form of Hebrew does not exist anywhere else except on, except on the Decalogue stone. Correct. Well, were, there, okay. were there people who believed that the first one was a fake, but the second one was authentic? Well, Charles Whittlesey said the first one was a recent artifact. His initial publications on the Decalogue Stone, he accepted it for a while. Okay. And in fact, we have people right now who will argue very, very strongly for the, quote, reality of the Decalogue Stone as an ancient artifact, mm -hmm. who will very quickly throw the keystone under the bus. My problem is, I think, for an assortment of reasons, if, if one goes, the other goes, but even that doesn't matter because the Decalogue Stone's flaws in and of itself make it clearly a modern creation. And I would sure. argue an 1860 creation. Beautiful.
All right, we're here with Jordan Harbinger from theartofcharm.com again, and we're going to talk about the Art of Charm podcasts. And over the last month, we've had some people write in and comment about the Art of Charm, and they want to know a little more about it. So, Jordan, can you tell us a little more about what they can find on your podcasts? Yeah, absolutely. I know that the term sort of like networking and relationship development is all vague and everything. So, basically, we focus on a lot of things, very broad topics. Our toolkits are focused on things like body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, business networking, negotiation, relationship management, etc. But we also branch into other topics like I had a guy on the show named Brad Salas, a guest, and he talked about millennials and how they can relate to their bosses better, uh, their boomer bosses, and how boomer bosses can relate to the new millennials better. Because as you can see in workplaces, those are guys are butting heads and it's kids are so dumb these days and it's old people don't get it. And it's just like, if we can bridge that gap, we can be more productive. So we gave a lot of practical exercises and steps to use that. We've also talked about how to burn fat while you're working with weird things like treadmill desks and being cold while you're working in the office to burn calories while you're just sort of being you working all day. And we, we cover hundreds of other things, but those are two kind of concrete examples of it. Hey, and these are real world things you can use. I've actually turned the temperature down in my home office because of that podcast uh, about just being cold because it's something you can do that's easy. Yeah, and there's plenty of guys out there listening to the show who bought these weird ice vests and they're sitting there freezing right now, but, you know, losing weight doing it. So we're weirdos, but we assume we're in good company. That's right. Well, you can check out more from The Art of Charm at theartofcharm.com and you can check out the podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and everywhere you download podcasts. Thank you. Are we ready to start delving into some of these flaws? Yeah, the flaws themselves are kind of boring, but the, the best uh, visual example I could give to people listening to this description, if you've <laughs> seen a, a, an American Revolution era document like the an old constitution or declaration, and you know they had this funny habit of, if you have the word Congress of the United States, the first S in Congress looks like an F. Absolutely. But the second yeah. one right. looks like a regular S. Well, what we think of as a modern-looking S is actually a terminal S in that old typeface. If you go through a document, all the S's look like F's, unless they're at the end of the word. At the end of the word, it's a normal-looking S. And, of course, you know, we all laughed about this as kids and talked with a list because, you know, why are all these F's in the document? But it was just, it was a typeface convention back in the 1700s. Right. Well, that terminal letter problem in a a typeface Hebrew, in a Hebrew Bible published in the last couple hundred years, there are what are called terminal forms of letters that look a little different than that letter when it's in the body of the word. And that terminal form, again, in a modern typeface, looks very similar to another letter. And we're talking about Daleth and Kaf, for those who know a bit about Hebrew. The thing is, in the Decalogue alphabet, there are no terminal forms. It's all run on. It's unpunctuated. It's it's as if you had a document that was all capital letters and no punctuation. So there's no terminal forms. And Daleth and Kaf are, again, in the Decalogue, I would argue, made up alphabet, completely different looking letters. The error pattern is when that terminal Daleth or that terminal cough, I'm sorry, the terminal cough looks like a Daleth. It's transposed into the Decalogue stone as the symbol of Daleth that doesn't look anything at all like a cough in the Decalogue alphabet. So the first time I saw that, I, I turned to uh, Brad and Paul and a couple of others and I said, you know, they've got a problem here with the, the terminal cough. It doesn't make any sense. And they said, Gesundheit. So, so okay, we we need to get some other Hebrew experts in here because I said I know a little, I know enough to be dangerous, but maybe there's a reason in some ancient dialect of Hebrew that you would transpose a Daleth for a Kaf other than this transposition, which I was pretty quickly convinced of. So we decided to go to the top and we went to a guy who helped to translate the Dead Sea Scrolls at Harvard University, a man named Dr. Frank Moorcross, and we threw ourselves on his mercy and Brad got a hold of him and said, help. Well, and we, uh, we had, a, I guess, a, an idea that he'd be helpful because he'd already helped uh, Bob Mainford and Mary Quas with the, uh, Bat, the Creek. Bat Creek Stone. And so we basically ask him the question, is there any other explanation for this whole terminal cough, Daleth transposition? Could I just not know as much Hebrew as I think I do? And there's some obscure reason why that might happen. Or can you think of any other reason for this error pattern in our version of the Ten Commandments? 
And, and we got this lovely, lovely letter back. And I say lovely because it has the words every scholar likes to hear in it. Frank Warcross of Harvard University wrote the words, Jeffrey Gill is right. Yeah, is <laughs> certainly right. Certainly right. Yeah. And, and he went on to just say that, you know, he, he went through his, his citations and his work, and he said, there is no other explanation anywhere in all of Hebrew over 3,000 years for this other than somebody transposing from a modern alphabet into this supposedly ancient alphabet. And with that, really, at that point, we set the whole question of hoax really aside. That locked it in. What became right. interesting is why? Because... This fellow that Brad mentioned here in Granville, and he was at this point a retired professor of biology, but he was really passionate about these objects. He met with me once, you know, trying to figure out why we couldn't see what he could see. And at one point he talked to, and we said there's more than two holy stones if you count all the stuff. Well, his favorite two other parts of the holy stones were this two-piece box the Decalogue stone was found in. And, and, yeah. and he points to it and he says to me, Jeff, Look at all the work, the careful craftsmanship in just the container for this Hebrew inscribed stone. Why would someone go to that much trouble to create a hoax? And sadly for Bob Alritz, I walked out of there not thinking he was right, but thinking, you know, Dr. Alritz asks a good question. Why was it worth that much effort? It's clearly a hoax. The Hebrew and other items about the carving and, and the discovery, timing, and everything else. It's a hoax, but it is a hoax somebody put a heck of a lot of work into. Why? I've, I've read the paper that Brad sent me, and it's very in-depth, and I appreciate it greatly. I'm not going to read it to everybody on the podcast. Can you guys go into the conclusions that you kind of came to what, about What were the why? motives? What, what, yeah. Jack, what would possess somebody to go to all this trouble, especially if Weirich is... is is kind of the, the useful idiot here where he had nothing to do with it, but somebody put it there knowing he would find it. Well, why? What, what was there? What was the, the, the motive behind and it? And honestly, this yeah. is the fun part. <laughs> well, to, to sort of jump to the chase, because we followed dozens and dozens of blind alleys. And for the longest time, it seemed like Agatha Christie's murder on the Orient Express. Mm -hmm. There were so many different agendas, Mormons and Masons, that this could have been used to support and was used to support, teasing out, following the, the threads back, we kept coming to this phrase that the unity of man was a big emphasis of debate. And, and I didn't know what that meant at that time. Began reading up on it and found a book by uh, Josiah Knott, uh, 1849, two lectures on the connection between the biblical and physical history of man. Uh, Josiah Knott was a terrible racist. He was a physician in Mobile, Alabama. He was not a nice man. <laughs> no, no. And, and he and, and a couple other fellows were put out this, what's called, as this unfortunate name, the American School of Physical Anthropology. Um, they championed the notion of polygenesis, that the different kinds of people we see around the world are actually different species. And he used this explicitly to justify the slavery of African blacks. And in this, uh, these two lectures, he was viciously attacking, in a very anti-Semitic way, the, the biblical story of the origins of man, which supported this monogenesis view that we're all descended from Adam and Eve and we're all brothers and sisters. Right. And he, he drew uh, several conclusions. He said, based on some of the work by these early archaeologists, that America's mounds were not just older than Moses, they were older than Adam. Um, and so the, and the Bible doesn't talk anything about them. Um, he says uh, Hebrew alphabet and writing didn't exist prior to the age of Solomon. Um, that, that's how ignorant and, and benighted the, the Hebrews were. Solomon being after Moses. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he says Hebrews at the time of Solomon had no great architecture. Um, he said Solomon's temple was not half as large as the smallest sized cathedral of England. And uh, finally, he says that Hebrews of both the Old and New Testaments were as ignorant of the world beyond the limits of the Roman world as we are of the geography of the moon. And when you read those arguments about why monogenesis is stupid and the, the Bible should be thrown in the waste bin, you realize that every one of those arguments is answered by the Decalogue Stone. 
gotcha. if if America's if a, a, the Decalogue stone with a picture of Moses and the Ten Commandments is found under a giant stone mound in America, then the mounds can't be older than Adam. They can't even be older than Moses. Um, the writing proves that, uh, of course, Hebrews had writing it at an early period. The architecture that the Holy Stones are associated with is the most amazing architecture in eastern North America, the complicated Newark earthworks and this gigantic stone mound. And yes. the Hebrews uh, being ignorant of the beyond the limits of the Roman world, well, if there's a thriving Hebrew community in Ohio, then the Hebrews were certainly aware of this broader geographic universe. So, so not sounds like a pretty, uh, a, a great, a nice piece of work there. Now, did anybody explicitly make the argument from the the discovery of Hebrew artifacts in Ohio, uh, ostensibly Hebrew artifacts in Ohio? Did anybody ex make that argument explicit? One one guy does, like in the eighteen seventies, long after this. But I think the reason it doesn't is because of this confluence of not just science and religion, but also politics. One of the things, as we were delving into the, the old newspapers, Jeff picked up on this before I did, um, the Republican newspapers accepted the Holy Stones as real, and the Democratic newspapers condemned them as frauds. That's um, almost, very interesting. Almost universally. We're like, why in the heck should that be? Back in 1860, almost every town, let alone city, in Ohio and up and down the Ohio River Valley, had at least two, if not more, papers. And generally, one was a Democratic paper and one had formerly been a Whig or a Free Soil paper. And by 1860, were becoming Republican. And, and, and party-wise, what's going on in the country, uh, hopefully we all know in the 1850s, the discussion is, is rising to a fever pitch over slavery over the Fugitive Slave Act, over the spread of slavery into the territories, and underneath all of this is the abolitionist movement, which itself, as we know from, from the, the different comments that Abraham Lincoln made about slavery and about what he referred to as the Negroes, uh, he wasn't necessarily entirely in favor of abolition himself, but Lincoln and that branch of what was then the, the, the developing new Republican Party was making a fairly radical statement that blacks and Indians were actually human. Right. And, and that's the thing. It, it took me a while to realize how clearly and how strongly people in the 1850s were still debating the question of the fundamental humanity of different races. And that, that carried over into the politics including into Licking County, Ohio, and here in Newark, where the political groups were starting to really butt heads over, wait a minute, are you saying not only that the slaves should be freed, but that they should be given the vote, that they should be allowed to be citizens? Why, you sound like you think they're human, just like you and me. That's the so debate. You're, so you're saying there's a, I mean, I know I'm recapping this whole conversation. So you're saying there's a political thread to the newer Holy Stones being accepted as evidence for uh, Hebrew occupation of America. Exactly. And the political thread traces to slavery. The, the Holy Stones, particularly the Decalogue Stone, is tailor-made to undermine polygenesis and to support the doctrine of monogenesis, which would take polygenesis off the table as a support for or a justification for slavery. And sadly, whether they were intending to support slavery or not, polygenesis was pretty much the mainstream American scientific view. It was, mm -hmm. it was being debated. There were adherents of mono, the theory of monogenesis, but monogenesis, which sounds very modern to our ears, it's like, well, of course they were right, but it was a little bit more fringy, and in fact, it was more popular in, you see me raising my hand here, religious circles. And it was Episcopal bishops, and it was leaders of the Quakers who were talking in terms of both abolition and also monogenesis to make the case that, no, Jews and Africans and Indians were just as human as you and me, and monogenesis had a biblical connection. So it gets very confusing when you're trying to think, sure. wait, what does this mean in modern terms? No, don't think that. You've got to think about it from behind. Well, let me touch on that too, because in also reference to the question of, of 
who did it and did anybody actually present this in the context of monogenesis and polygenesis. In 1839, there was a, a scientific publication called An Inquiry into the Origin of the Antiquities of America, and this was written by John Delafield, Jr. Well, the guy that writes the preface is Bishop Charles McIlvain, the Episcopal Bishop for Ohio. So why the Episcopal Bishop is writing the introduction to a mm -hmm. scientific volume is an interesting question. But in this book, he writes, what a wonderful book is the Bible, but what connection has the Bible with American antiquities? Suppose that in searching the tumuli or the mounds that are scattered so widely over this country, suppose that under one of those huge structures of earth which remains of their works, a book were discovered, an alphabetical history of that race. What a wonder that would be. And then several pages later, at the end of his essay, he says, in reference to the question whether all the races of men have descended from one common stock, the antiquities of this continent are specially interesting and may prove of very great value. And Talk about a smoking a gun. <laughs> Bishop McIlvain had a whole lot of friends in Newark. And that sure sounds like Bishop McIlvain saying, gosh, guys, it would really <laughs> help if I could find something like this. And not just friends, a former student. Former students, very close colleagues in the life of the Episcopal Church in Ohio. So I don't know how much time or how far we want to go into the <laughs> cast of characters. And, you know, we still suffer from uh, murder on the Orient Express syndrome. Uh, Brad and I don't always agree on exactly who we think did what. We've never, there's no smoking gun. There is no letter where somebody admits, well, except for that one guy. Well, we're sure about the main guy. We just don't, we are, we argue about how far this community of people might have been. There's, there's a wonderful quote in one of the newspapers where they're, they're, they're championing it as, as the Holy Stones is real. And they're sort of dismissing the possibility of it being a fraud by saying, if it's a fraud, it involves whole communities of especially learned men. You know, it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> That's what we think happened. Uh, yeah, but you know, you guys have kind of weave, woven this story that uh, is very heavy and really takes away from the goofiness of the Holy Stones. You've kind of made it this object of unification. Um, I don't know if I want you to solve it now. <laughs> that, that, that's what they wanted. And, and uh, I guess the payoff of some of the public presentations I've done on the Holy Stones uh, again, addressing Bob Walritz's question, why would someone put this much work into a hoax? And, and I, I like to close with the question, if you thought that by crafting a particular object, one that you were certain existed in some very similar form out there, but simply hadn't been found yet, and if you sincerely believed that discovering and publicizing this artifact could prevent a great civil war where tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people would die, maybe even your own 18-year-old son, would you do it? And you always get a really nice question. silence in the room. Yes, of course. <laughs> wow. And, and honestly, I, I think you've, you've got a number of characters who were clergy, like uh, Reverend uh, John Winspear McCarty, and you've got the mayor of Newark, Israel Dilly, and you've got a, a cast of characters with them, stonemasons, and others who would have some skills that come into play, and we're still trying to figure out what this uh, dentist, uh, John Nickel, was up to. But whoever and however they were doing it, it all taps into that sense in 1860. Here's the biggest historical hurdle you have to jump back over. In, in the spring and fall of 1860, the Civil War hadn't started yet, but everyone could see it coming. The question was, could we avoid it? Now it's so hard to see everything without going, but of course Lincoln was elected, of course Lincoln was inaugurated, of course Fort Sumter's fired upon. At the point these objects we believe were created and planted and found and publicized, there was still every reason to hope that the Civil War could be avoided. And it, it seems almost charmingly naive. If I could just hold up the right object, I could make all of these racists admit the unity of humankind, and we could all walk away elbow to elbow singing Kumbaya. Well, and recall that the Decalogue Stone is found on November 1st, 1860, in rather unseemly haste when the De 
Keystone has just been uh, dismissed, but Lincoln becomes elected in, on the 6th of November. Huh. And so in essence, I... part of where we think there's a, a period of silence after the first flurry of attention to the Keystone and then the Decalogue Stone, uh, we account for it very simply. Lincoln is inaugurated. Fort right. Sumter is fired upon. And for the people who created the hoax, once the Civil War starts, well, we didn't make it, guys, and they're done with it. Then it takes on this whole second, or should I say second, third, fourth, and fifth life, or it becomes, uh, in, in a chapter title I keep thinking about, uh, the hoax that wouldn't die. Well, and it's not just the end of slavery with the, the victory of the North in the Civil War. It's also the publication of Darwin's Origin of the Species in 1859, which completely undermines the whole monogenesis polygenesis debate and that's right. why it was so hard to recover the historic context because i didn't know anything about monogenesis and polygenesis darwin colors everything that i've Swept learned from the field well no that that's that's a valid point brad makes a very valid point i mean we we are taught evolution from an early stage in our, in our education but yeah to be able to look back i mean i know what polygenesis is but that's just because i have a religious background so yeah, I could understand how that would be weird no, encounter. What's interesting here is I'm I'm seeing this uh, this analogy to one of the greatest archaeological hoaxes and paleoanthropological hoaxes, Piltdown, where people today yeah. will say, "Hey, look, yeah. what's that? We don't know who committed Piltdown. We know Charles Dawson was involved, but others were involved. We may never know who who was involved. Exactly. Um, but it, that's not as important as understanding the context of the why did that hoax. So why was it so successful? Why did people embrace it? What were the people who perpetrated? What were they trying to prove? That's the important part of the story. And I think the same thing applies here to the Holy Stones. Who, th there were individuals involved, obviously, but what's important is what was what was their motive? What what was their goal in putting these things in the ground in Ohio, making sure that somebody found them and making sure that people interpreted them in the way they intended? I like that parallel. I think it's a very important parallel because one of the books on Piltdown describes it as a scientific forgery. And I think that's exactly what the Newark Holy Stones are, particularly the, the, the Newark Decalogue. It's not a hoax. It's not a prank. It's a scientific forgery crafted to solve, to end a scientific debate that had all these political and religious ramifications. That's really, that's, that's a lot. It's, it's incredible, lot. isn't it? The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. What, what's the, now, I'm going to ask a very specific question here that a lot of archaeologists are probably going to want to know. What's the raw material? What are these things made out of, and what's the source? The, the keystone is simply made out of quartzite. Um, it could be, in fact, somebody's honestone just reshaped into the keystone or a general or store sharpening stone that's been reshaped by a stonemason. Gotcha. The uh, uh, Decalogue stone is made out of black limestone, which you can find near Kenyon College, which is where one of the principal actors in our drama uh, went to school, um, the Reverend John Winspear McCarty. Right. So you're. Well, are either, but here, are either of those materials, uh, you find those materials in prehistoric sites? In the area, though, correct? Um, not so much. I'm not a really quartzite. Maybe occasionally used, but I've I've never seen black limestone in any any other context. And, and, and the same now with the quartzite. Nothing comparable I can think of in a Hopewell, Ohio setting. Okay, so th those are completely out of context for the time period that they were excavated. They're anomalous, right? Okay, right. All right, that's that's good to know. And what's what's interesting here is that in the the, the one case that we have in which ancient people from the old world came to the new after the Indians before Columbus, the Norse, is that we have act raw materials found at St. Lonso Meadow that are not native to North America, but that came from the old world, the bronze 
uh, ring-headed right. bronze pin, for example. But in this case, these are local rocks. These are not something that somebody can say, well, it must have come from Israel. It must have come from Asia. It's not. These are yeah, from Ohio. If the Decalogue stone was made out of honey-colored Jerusalem limestone, we'd have a problem. <laughs> there but, you go. Uh, not even close. And now, and now we're going to find one that is, so thanks. But even so, it wouldn't be much of a problem. There were like the Innocents Abroad in Twain's book. There were all oh, kinds sure. of pilgrims going over there, and they could have brought, brought, brought back stones like that. It could be an authentic Israelite object brought back as a souvenir and planted in the mound. Right. So... Uh, so we know a lot about the history now, and, and it's really cool history. And I will be linking the I'll be linking the blog posts that you guys sent to me because it you guys go into a lot of depth there, and I really think people should read those because it does kind of fill the story in a whole lot more. But let's jump forward in time uh, to the new rediscovery of the Newark stones and the new way that the Newark stones are being used in uh, our modern pop culture, I guess. Well, as you say, Brad, there are people right now today who disc who discount everything you guys have just said, and they insist on believing that at least one of those is genuine, ancient, and proof of the of the presence of ancient Hebrews in Ohio. Yes, there was an, almost an entire episode of America Unearthed devoted to the Decalogue Stone. I haven't gotten there yet, but yes. No surprise yes, there. there. Did, did he interview you, Brad? <laughs> Oddly, no. Amazing! That's a, that, a curious omission. I think. Did they interview Jeff? Oh no, no, no! no. no. They, they knew what we'd say, and uh, made it onto Glenn Beck's show uh, when he was still on TV here a few years ago. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh yeah, because he's a big supporter of them. He's a supporter of an assortment of things, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, he's a big supporter of the of the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, of... without naming names, um, unless you want to. Who, what, what are there particular groups of people today who are saying th th that these things are genuine? That they, who is saying they're real still, and why are they saying it? Well, one group of people are the folks that are members of the various epigraphic societies that are simply like conspiracy theorists that think modern archaeologists are trying to hide this hidden history and. They have evidence, they think, for all kinds of old world civilizations here in America. Um, and they use, actually, Whittlesey's dismissal of the Holy Stones as a fraud as part of this evidence for a conspiracy of archaeologists, not apparently realizing that Whittlesey first accepts them as, in the case of the Keystone, an authentic historic artifact, right. and in the case of the Decalogue, as an authentic prehistoric artifact that really does indicate connections with Hebrews. It's only after a blue ribbon group of scholars, including Ephraim Squire, does a detailed study of the circumstances and, and dismisses them as forgeries that Whittlesey comes out and says, oh, well, yeah, they're fakes. And well, we have certainly a lot of interest, not from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as a whole, the, uh, the Mormon Church, as it's often right. referred to out of Salt Lake City, but within the, the Mormon world, there's a group that holds to what's called the Heartland Hypothesis. And it has to yes. do with the idea of the Book of Mormon not, not being something Joseph Smith wrote, but something that he discovered and translated. And I'm sure that's a whole other podcast. But at any <laughs> rate, uh, a lot of modern-day Latter-day Saints would say, well, the events of the Book of Mormon probably took place somewhere in the area of Central America. And they just kind of leave it alone and say, and I'd rather not talk more about it. <laughs> right, and and then there is this this group that's really had quite a resurgence over the last ten years or so, and interestingly, they have some overlap with the the epigraphy world, let's say the the epigraphic society mm -hmm. groups, to say that actually the events of the Book of Mormon not only actually took place, but they took place largely in the area of Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. And so in, in that reading, they're interpreting the events described in the Book of Mormon as happening in places like the Chillicothe earthwork enclosures and also here in Newark. And they're also very interested in any other clues or hints that can help to confirm that way of reading the Book of Mormon. We get, oh, dozens of bus tours a year of folks interested in that particular perspective coming out of Utah, Arizona, Idaho, Texas. Uh -huh. And uh, they kind of do their own thing. They don't ask me to talk to them. I'm not sure if Brad gets his chances. Oh, sure. But the <laughs> early Mormons at the time the frauds appeared 
did cite them as evidence for the Book of Mormon. Orson Pratt, for example, published right. a, a, a good review of them. So that's one of those other folks on the Orient Express that has this agenda that feeds into or supports the Holy Stone agenda. And that's part of that, you know, the, the rise and fall and the hoax that wouldn't die or whatever the best way to put that is. So, so it, the Holy Stones after the Civil War when they were no longer being used for what I would propose as their original function, get picked up by Orson Pratt and 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 the Brigham Young era leadership of, of the Latter-day Saints. And then they get burned by the Soper frauds and a few other things like that. And they walk away from all of it, Holy Stones included. And, and then it starts popping back up again, really in popular culture, uh, with the rise of the creationist movement, the idea of young earth creationism, mm -hmm. uh, the earth was created in 4000 BC, and uh, our old friend, Dr. Bob Walritz, he was a biology professor at uh, Denison University, but he was also a creationist, and that seems to have some connections to his particular passion for the Holy Stones, mm -hmm. and, and, and we've watched a few old... Uh, cable TV, uh, odd ministry programs, you know, back in the days of Chiron generators and, and, and big fat videotape. And, and Bob Ulrich would talk to these evangelists about the Holy Stones and that they proved something. We were never quite sure what even after watching the programs. Well, it, it fits, it, it fills the same need for modern creationists as it did for the original folks. It allows you to put American prehistory into the context of Genesis and Exodus. Right. And, and so yeah, you've you got the, the creationist angle, you've got an earlier Mormon angle, but now you've got today's Mormon angle. And then you have, I, I think, the general, you archaeology folks don't know as much as you think you do. And by the way, why do you hide all those giant skeletons? And you know, <laughs> giants, or the Nephilim hypothesis, has suddenly sprouted and blossomed, and we're finding that to be a whole nother ripple of, and what does that have to do with the Holy Stones? And, and that's where people like Brad and I kind of look at each other and throw up our hands and go, where to start? Oh, my God. <laughs> well, the good news is that we did a, a, a podcast with Andy White, and yeah, cool. uh, his, his work on the Giants is just absolutely spectacular, a wonderful debunking of it. It's, it's very worth reading. You know, there, there's a context for these the Holy Stones that they are unique, but there are a series of other inscribed stones found in. There's the Bat Creek Stone. There's the uh, the what the Grave Creek tablets, the Davenport tablets. The time period we're talking about is all what mid 19th century. Am I correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And so there's this real peak in these things. Now, Brad, as an archaeologist working in Ohio and familiar with the archaeology that's gone on there since the discovery of the newer Holy Stones, how many more Hebrew-inscribed artifacts have archaeologists found in Ohio? Um, that would be none, Kenny. Now, that, that, that's kind of interesting, don't you think, Brad? Now, <laughs> you guys have just stopped digging in the mounds, or, or how, is that, how do we explain that? Well, and, and even more damning than no funny inscribed tablets, no Hebrew settlements, villages, architecture. Um, no, apparently, if they were here, they were only, you know, scattering these tablets around and not leaving any other traces of their existence. <laughs> Which is Well, that's because their existence at that time looked exactly like Native American mound builders, apparently. I guess, huh? <laughs> Sorry. Well, I, I've, I've always wondered about, you know, th this claim that, well, the ancient Hebrews were building these mounds. And I asked people who say who who will say that. I said, well, in other words, they're building mounds just like they did back in Israel during that period. I said, well, no, there aren't burial mounds there. So apparently they only only made them in Ohio. Well, and apparently the people they buried in the mounds weren't the Israelites. They were their Native American slaves or something because we've actually looked at DNA from people buried in Hopewell Mounds and they're descended from Asian people that came across the Bering Land Bridge 13, 14,000 years ago. Exactly so. But I think it's a, it's a really key point that once archaeology becomes professionalized and you have folks who are trained in archaeology and they're doing a lot of meticulous digging, that if these things were out there, we would be finding them. And the notion that we would be hiding that that truth from people is kind of absurd on its face. Um, archaeologists are are certainly like everybody else. They found something exciting that that contradicted what everybody else believed. We'd be out there. We'd be getting grants from National Geographic. So this notion that the, 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 I think it's 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 key. The the point that Brad makes. 
that if people are making these kinds of stones, again, to compare it to the Norse example, we have an actual village of Norse settlers in Newfoundland. We have their house remains that are typically diagnostically Norse. We have their fireplaces. We have boat rivets and artifacts. But we don't have, There's, as far as I know, there's not a single Hebrew settlement 2,000-year-old Hebrew settlement in all of Ohio. And that's that's a, an overwhelming uh, ba- a barrier that somebody has to jump over to explain, well, why are there Hebrew-inscribed tablets? Um, it, it just it, it just doesn't wash. Yeah, and it's kind of funny, Ken, because, I mean, I in grad school, I'd been aware of the Newark Holy Stone sort of vaguely, but when I first became employed by the Ohio History Connection at Newark, I, I would get annoyed at people that would ask me about the holy stones and i was just like well no no those are fakes though that doesn't have anything to do with this rich prehistory that we now understand and i eventually sort of got pushed into well i've got to finally do some research about these so i can talk intelligently about them because people say oh no they're real professor allritz at denison says they're real and so half against my will i started researching these but it just became a fun mystery to solve now, do the two of you, I mean, Brad, especially you in your position at the Ohio Historical Society, do you get regular correspondence from people who want to know about the Holy Stones, who, who think that you are going to somehow confirm their their hope that they're, they're real? Is this still an active, are people still actively searching this out? Yes, I don't get a lot of correspondence in this regard, I suppose, because a lot of the people that are interested have been on the Internet and already know what kind of answer I would give. But sure, for uh, maybe a couple of calls every other year or so, people will, I've heard about these holy stones, you know, what are they? Do, you know, do they really show that ancient Israelites were here? Mm-hmm. And then I get to say, let me, t- how much time do you have? <laughs> and, and I still do a lot of school tours and occasionally uh-huh. bus tours or, or help with, with walk-arounds there at the Great Circle or the Octagon parts of the Newark Earthworks. And, and it's a pretty regular, it's not a majority, it's not all of them, it's not even every, but it, it's, it's probably closer to at least every other tour group if it's more than just a couple of people. Somebody will say, didn't they find something about Hebrew people or Jewish people or the Holy Stones? You'll get some version of the question. So, I, I mean, it just it floats out there. And, uh, and, and like I said, just when, you know, you think it's kind of quieting down, all of a sudden somebody says, you got to turn on Glenn Beck. And I said, why on earth for? They said, just turn it on. <laughs> and uh, there you go. There's the octagon and there's the right. Decalogue stone on, on national TV. Right, exactly. Now, this is a question I'm going to throw out there for both of you, um, especially Brad, since you are technically a professional archaeologist. Um, More than technically, he actually <laughs> well, he's, he's got his PhD and everything, I mean. Do you not feel like it is your, like it is a responsibility of professionals to address these kind of questions because it's important for us to be educating the public about the misconceptions and about frauds like the Newark Holy Stones? Do, do you not feel like it is part of your job as a professional archaeologist? And Well, it's certainly a part of my job, but I'm not exactly, and I suppose this is maybe where your technically comes in, I'm I'm not an academic archaeologist, I'm not so much into academia, my my primary job is public education. And I do have people that say, you know, well, you're wasting your time talking about Holy Stones, you should just be talking about the real archaeology, but I think it's just as valuable to try to put out some of these fires as it is to tell the real story. For sure. Jeff, do you feel the same way? Well, I'm interested in in community affairs and what it means, especially for young people to grow up in an area and to learn their area's story. So I want them to learn the true story. I also want them to get excited about what is an actually amazing story here in Licking County, here in Ohio, and and for people to get excited about false connections and, and illusory uh, imaginings of who actually did what. You know, for instance, I, I suspect you might have dealt with this before, but we really avoid the term mound builders like the plague because it's associated with this whole era of 
arguing that there was this mysterious group that came here from outside, built the mounds, and then vanished. Sure. The vanished stuff is so cool. Well, you know, it's actually a lot cooler to look at the story of what Native Americans accomplished on this landscape over thousands of years. The Holy Stones are really a, 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 a condensed, high-impact version of that same challenge, which is, what's really more interesting here? That this supposed narrative of somebody who came in from out the outside, did something amazing, and then disappeared, or the fact that, that this community has a story worth talking about, thinking about, and empathizing with. That, that is absolutely yeah. wonderful, a, a wonderful uh, summary of, of so many archaeological frauds, myths, and mysteries where it's like the, 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 the made-up stories are not anywhere near as interesting as what yeah. we really know to be true. When I first got involved in this, there were articles sort of back and forth with Dr. Alritz and myself. He, he's saying they were real and me saying they were false. And at one point he was quoted in this article as saying, well, he was glad that he'd given me something to do with, with my time. <laughs> and, and I was, I was young then. And I, I uncharitably responded in a letter to the editor that yes, uh, Dr. Alritz has given me something to do, but I am no more grateful to Dr. Alritz than a firefighter is grateful to an arsonist. Wow. <laughs> oh, now, did he still talk to you after that, Brad? Oh yeah. He was a very gracious man. And, and I've got to say, did you mail him a bottle of alone after that burn? Oh. <laughs> hey, there was a charming coda to this whole story, which is, uh, as he was getting very ill towards the end, uh, he actually met individually with both Brad and myself, kind of took one more old college try at, at making sure that we were thinking about some of what he thought of as the more interesting aspects of the Holy yeah. Stones. And then essentially, he handed us all of his research notes. Wow. He oh, knew we were completely on the other end of this, this debate, and yet he just found the objects in whatever they represented to be so interesting, he didn't want his work to completely go to waste. And, I mean, every time I look at that milk crate, I, I think, you know, <laughs> that, really, that was a mark of trust, and that's also an interesting reminder of, of why this story continues to fascinate. There are some very strong feelings as well as as crazy thinking that went into that, it. That, that's actually really cool yes. for him. I mean, that's that's a neat way of doing that. And you know what else is really cool? Is that folks who are interested in the newer Coley Stones can actually see them. Brad, you want to tell yes. people where they can find the newer Coley Stones today? In Coshocton, Ohio, at the Roscoe Village uh, Johnson Humrick House Museum. The Roscoe Village is a wonderful, uh, quaint place to visit, and the museum has a marvelous collection of authentic artifacts, but one of their featured exhibits is the, the newer Coley Stones and some other related objects. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful little town. That area is it's absolutely gorgeous, and the museum is spectacular. And, yep, there they are. It, it's, it's, it really is something to see them in person and realize this amazing history that surrounds them. It's, it's, I highly recommend if you're, if you're ever anywhere near the area of Coshocton is check out that museum and take a look at the, at the Holy Stones. Well, the reality of it is, is they really are artifacts now. They're an art, they're artifacts of a, of history. Absolutely. Um, even though they're fake, yeah, they're, they are real at the same time. And, and the folks that are really when I first was going there in grad school, they had them in a drawer, and later they asked me, a you know, drawer. yeah, in a desk drawer. They asked me, oh, should geez. we display them? And I said, absolutely, they oh, should yeah. be displayed. They're they're an important episode, important insights into the history of American archaeology. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. And that's that's another okay. good analogy with Piltdown. When I was I was at the uh, museum in London. Uh, years ago, the museum that was affiliated with the discovery, and I asked people at the front desk, you know, where do you have the Piltdown man on display? They said, oh, he's not on display. <laughs> and, but then, but then, actually, a couple of years later, they had a website up, and they start. They realized that it wasn't something to be embarrassed about. It was something to talk about because it reflected an, a, a part of the history of yeah. archaeology, and so do the Holy Stones. Yep. Yeah. Okay, guys, we're coming up on an hour here. Um, do we want uh, final thoughts from Brad and Jeff? Absolutely. Do you guys have any final thoughts on the topic? Uh, you've, you've given us a lot of information, actually, so there's a lot to chew over in this episode. Okay. What are your parting shots at us? Sure. I, I guess for me, the, the takeaway lesson is just how fascinating the story of the Holy Stones has proven to be. For me, it's much more 
fulfilling and interesting than the story of, gee, just, you know, somebody's made fakes and maybe it proves the lost tribes of Israel were here. Um, but it's a little embarrassing, though, to find out that uh, an early archaeologist from my hometown of Hudson, Ohio, wrote back in, uh, oh, sometime in the 1800s, that uh, the forgeries of this kind will always in some way represent the ideas at the time of the forgery. And I think that's been something of a keystone in our research in this, to this project. Absolutely, sure. Yeah, no, that's a real true statement. And I just say with the, the researches that we've gotten to do together on in the Holy Stones, it, it's been a window into the history of archaeology, especially American archaeology, but, but they've just become kind of an index for, for the larger question of how people use prehistory for modern day agendas. And we see this in the Middle East. We're starting to see the rise yeah. of it in Southeast Asia. And, and with the growth of Islam and, and geopolitical considerations around that, and, and people are using archaeology to advance political and scientific agendas. And, and so it, it makes the Holy Stones relevant, if only as a test case, to try to think through what does it mean to work in the contested ground of prehistory and archaeological interpretation. Yeah, especially with the loss of a lot of artifacts, artifacts recently, so... Well, this, this, guys, this was absolutely great. I want Once again, I want to recommend to everybody, go out and get yourself a copy of the May-June 2000 issue of Timeline for a great piece by Jeff and Brad on the Newark Holy Stones. And absolutely, um, the Ohio Archaeology, the Illustrated Chronicle that Brad wrote, um, is it's a marvelous book, spectacular photographs of artifacts and of sites. It's it's one of those coffee table books that it's not just the pictures, man. You got you have you'll, you have it on your coffee table. You'll be opening it and reading it it uh, constantly. It's a wonderful reference, and I highly recommend it. You know, I, I've seen it on Amazon. Every review of it, it it's the, the the superb, fantastic, wonderful. So um, highly recommend the real deal archaeology that's in there. Um, is is incredibly important, and should go go take a look at that. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> well, guys, thank you very much for letting us interview you, and I've, I've learned a lot. I figure, again, Ken knows everything, so I don't have to worry about I that. I was born but... knowing everything, Sarah. I know, it's amazing. I, I wish I was you. I really do. Um, but Brad, Jeff, thank you both for joining yeah, guys, us. Thank um, you very much for your time. This was absolutely wonderful, spot on, and I'm sure the listeners of the podcast are really going to appreciate it. Yeah, this, is, this was great. Thank you for inviting us. It's been fun. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archaeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. Raise your trials as one will call. No, we don't do dinosaurs. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.